Well, we come to the end of James's letter tonight, and we have been in James in some form or fashion since September. So it's been five months. We haven't been in it every week, but I think even in the off weeks when we were in Exodus or doing something else, I think James has continued to be in us. We've continued to reflect and meditate upon the word that God has to us in the letter of James. And I'm excited about where we're finishing out tonight and some of the things that we're going to do. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had in James over these months. I thank you for some of the testimonies that people have shared about how your word has pricked their conscience and touched their heart and caused them to see things in a new way and to begin to change. And I pray that tonight as we round out this letter that we would hear everything that you desire for us to hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the previous part of the letter last week, James was playing the part of the Old Testament prophet. And he was speaking words of warning and judgment to those who were not entering the kingdom of God, but also those who were persecuting the church. And now in these final sections, he turns his gaze back toward the church. He takes off his Old Testament prophet hat and he puts his pastor's hat back on. So let's look at seven and eight 
James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So three times in just these two verses, James exhorts the church to be patient, to wait for the Lord to act. So that should cause us to think, how does patience work in general? And then how does patience work in the kind of dire situation that these Christians were facing? So if somebody asks you to be patient, three conditions must exist if you're going to comply with the request to be patient. The first one is that you must believe that the person asking you to be patient is trustworthy. That you can trust that if they're asking you to be patient, then you will eventually get what it is that you desire. It's interesting that government officials will often ask us to be patient and people will be patient depending on how they think of the trustworthiness of that official. Second, you must also believe that the wait won't be too long or so long as not to make the wait worth your time. Okay? So you have to think it's not going to be too long or if it's not going to be so long that it's just not worth my time. If you show up at your favorite restaurant, whatever your favorite restaurant is, and they say it'll be a 45-minute wait, you will probably do the 45-minute wait because it's your favorite restaurant. And you think, well, it's worth it. I know that I'm going to get something good. If there's a 45-minute wait to get into White Castle, you're probably not going to do it. You might not wait five minutes. Third, you must be willing to behave yourself while you are waiting so that you don't forfeit the right to whatever it is that you're waiting for. You have to have good behavior while you're waiting so that you don't forfeit that thing. So, for example, if a child is playing with a toy and another child comes along and wants to play with that same toy, despite the fact that there's zillions of other toys to play with, wants to play with that same toy, and you ask the child, you say, you need to be patient, and if you're patient, you will get a turn. Will they? Will they wait and be patient? Well, first, the child must believe that you are trustworthy and that you'll keep your word about having a chance to play with the toy. If you've broken your word about that kind of thing, they're not going to trust you and they may not be patient. The child must believe that the wait won't be too long, maybe 10 minutes until they get the turn or 20 minutes and not five days from now. And the child must be willing to behave himself or herself while they wait or they might forfeit their turn at playing with the toy. All right, does this make sense so far? So how does this work for James's audience? Well, first, they had to believe that James himself was trustworthy, that they could trust him, that what he had just prophesied about the Lord's judgment on their persecutors is trustworthy, and that the promise of the Lord's coming is trustworthy. They had to believe that this would happen. Second, they had to believe that the Lord's coming was actually near and not something way beyond their lifetimes that they'd never see. And then finally, they had to behave appropriately. They had to stop the move toward violent retaliation. They could no longer speak aggressive words toward one another. And they had to make sure that they weren't becoming stained by the world. And the Lord's coming, which James says here is at hand, is almost certainly the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which Jesus had said would happen in that very generation. 
And because it would happen in that generation, they had to believe that it wasn't far off. In the meantime, they had to act like brothers toward one another and not as enemies, which is why James says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And this recalls everything that James said earlier in chapter 3 about the tongue and how easy it is to speak hellish words toward one another. And everything that James said in chapter 4 about how this was actually happening within the community. He said, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Remember, murdering with their words. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. They are to wait with patience, like the farmer who plants and isn't constantly digging up the seed to see if anything is grown. The Lord is trustworthy, and faithfulness is worth the wait. Amen? All right, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James had just been channeling the Old Testament prophets in his speech, and now he points to them as examples of steadfastness. And the word steadfastness takes us all the way back to the beginning of James's letter, where he uses it a couple different times. So in verse 2 in chapter 1, he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it was way back in September when we first went through this passage. So we need a refresher. James says that testing produces steadfastness, which we might think of as endurance or the refusal to quit, the refusal to knuckle under. You might remember that I mentioned the movie in the book Unbroken, where Louis Zamperini holds that big heavy beam over his shoulders for 37 minutes, refusing to quit and refusing to give in to his captors. And we need that kind of determination and refusal to quit as we move toward maturity because it's easy to give up. And so when you meet a trial and you trust God in it, remember God builds something in you. And he builds this inner resolve and determination to keep going. That's what steadfastness is. And it makes you not want to give up the ground that you've gained. So when you encounter another trial, The steadfastness that God has built in you pushes you to receive that trial with joy because that's the way to maturity. That's the way to really growing up. And you ask God for help in that trial and he builds more steadfastness in you. And we do that over and over again for the rest of our lives, all the way to maturity where we're made perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And so James's audience must be patient and steadfast Refusing to force things to go their way or for their gain. And trusting that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Does that make sense? All right, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
This might seem kind of out of place. And there are scholars and people who read James as just a collection of miscellaneous things that James said, and it's just kind of patchwork together, and there's no real logical flow from one thing to the next, and they point to things like this. But I think there's a real logic to it. So once again, James goes to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said in chapter 5, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So think of the external pressure that the church was facing and and think of the infighting, the threats inside and outside. There would have been a temptation to solidify relationships and pacts within the church by making oaths to one another. You know, back me against this guy and I swear I'll put you in my inner ring. Or somebody could apply pressure and say, if you're really with us, then you need to swear an oath to it. And that's a misuse of the tongue, going back to chapter 3. It's a misuse of the tongue. It's an attempt to secure something through manipulation. Swearing to one another might achieve some temporary goal. It might seem like good glue to cement a relationship, but it's not. It's, It's bad mud and it's brittle and it will break at the first conflict. When we say yes or no to one another, we really say as much as our character allows. We really say as much as people know us to be trustworthy. And that's why a yes or a no coming from one person means a lot more than it does coming from somebody else. And that should challenge us to always be growing in Christ-likeness so that the yes or the no that we give has weight to it. And we're not tempted to manipulate through oaths. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So once again, James takes us back to the beginning of the letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Whoever is suffering needs to pray. And whoever is joyful in the midst of suffering needs to give praise and give thanks. And think about it. It would take courage to be cheerful and to sing praise in the midst of the circumstances that the churches found themselves in. People might have said, what do you have to be so cheery about? What are you singing for? But it's true that the the presence of suffering does not negate our cause for joy. The presence of suffering in our life and in our church never negates our cause for joy. Our cause for joy, the truth of Jesus Christ, stands firm regardless of our circumstances. And so James says, sing praise, belt it out. If, If you have something to be cheerful about, belt it out, sing praise. And then he says that the one who is sick should call for the elders of the church and be prayed for and be anointed with oil. And the, James, uh, the idea that James presents is not just the physically sick, but also those who are injured, those who are depressed, those who are weak, and even those who are experiencing intense doubt about what's going on in the church. All these need prayer from the leaders of the church. So why oil? I'm sure that's a question we all have. Why oil? Well, it's not magic. 
It's not that there's a healing element in the oil and it works like magic. That's not, what he's, that's not why he's prescribing it. But rather, it's a symbolic ritual. So in the Old Testament, kings and priests were anointed with oil to be set aside for their new vocation. And then also, in Mark, we're told that Jesus sent out the twelve, and it says, they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So I think if you take those things together, being set aside for new vocation and being anointed with oil because you're sick, I think it's when we anoint people with oil, we are setting them apart for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are setting them apart so that the Holy Spirit can do a work of healing in their lives. Oil on the head symbolizes the descent of the Holy Spirit upon a person. We see this in 1 Samuel which says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So David was being anointed as the coming king, but the Spirit descends upon him from that day forward. Does that make sense? Also, olive oil is used on the lampstand in the tabernacle. You have to have olive oil on the lampstand in order for the flame to burn. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as fire in the New Testament. John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the seven burning torches before the throne in Revelation are the sevenfold Spirit of God. And so the oil is put on the head of the afflicted person so that the Spirit may burn there and heal. It's a healing burn in the person. And it's a physical symbol of an inward reality that's taking place. And we're going to do that tonight during our prayer time. We're going to pray for people who are sick. And then afterward, anybody who would like to be prayed for and anointed with oil, Patrick and I are going to do that tonight. This good so far? All right, verse 15. I read this before, but I'm going to read it again. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth its fruit. So James says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think James has to have in mind the time when Jesus was teaching in a house and it was so crowded that a man's friends tore off part of the roof and lowered him through the roof so that he could be near Jesus. And what happened next? It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. He's paralyzed, but Jesus forgives his sins and then raises him up by healing him from his paralysis. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Again, think of someone with a terrible illness or a dark depression or doubt. James says that faithful people praying for that person, including their own prayers, will preserve that person all the way through. They will be saved 
They will be kept. They will be counted among the faithful, and they will be recognized by Jesus as their own. The prayer of a righteous person isn't finished as soon as the audible words fade out of sound. It keeps working. And I'm reminded of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke's gospel. Remember, they were old and barren, and surely at one time they fervently prayed for a child. But once they were old, they probably weren't praying for that anymore. And yet Gabriel, when he comes, he says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. How long ago had they stopped praying for a child? But Luke describes them as righteous and walking blamelessly in all the commandments of God. They were righteous people and the prayers that they offered long ago and had probably forgotten about at this point or just considered had never been answered by God was still working and now was being answered. Isn't that amazing? And James uses the example of Elijah and he wants to point out that Elijah had a nature just like ours, regular human being just like ours, somebody who ate and slept and worked and thought and confronted evil just like we do. And so we're eligible by God's grace to pray the kind of prayer that Elijah prayed that stopped the rain for three and a half years and then restarted it later on. And I think it's an exhortation for us. If you know that you're lazy in prayer for yourself and for others, perhaps the Spirit is tapping you on the shoulder through Elijah's example and James's exhortation. And then backing up just a little bit, the church is to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another that they may be healed. Ongoing sin in our lives is a sickness, but that sickness can only fester and get worse in darkness. When it's allowed to be in the darkness, it gets worse, but when it's brought out into the light, it is healed. It has nowhere to hide, and we can be healed. Going back to the first John passage that I read at the beginning of the night, and a couple of verses before it, John says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Amen. We have to live out in the open with each other to be healed from our sin. And then finally, verse 19 and 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Some in the churches that James is writing to have wandered from the truth. They believe they're on their own. They're using murderous words against one another. They're trying to gain power over one another. And they're opting for violence and retaliation. And they're intentionally moving away from the kingdom of God. 
And James says, don't just accept that. Don't just accept that some people are wandering away from the truth. Go after them. Go after those who are wandering away. Do everything that you can to bring them back and save their soul from becoming this shriveled up thing that no longer resembles the implanted word of God. Don't give up on a brother or a sister. I admit that sometimes I've gotten very frustrated with people for their bad decisions or their indifference in growing toward maturity. And I'm sure we've all wondered, how far do you keep going with somebody who doesn't seem to want to grow or who just repeatedly makes terrible decisions in their lives? How far do you go with somebody? Well, according to James, you go as far as you can. You go as far as you possibly can. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, he will save his soul from death. Those are high stakes. The kind of stakes that don't allow us to quit, to give up on people, or to consider them beyond reach. Because deep down within the mess and the turmoil, at their core is a plea, don't leave me here. Don't leave me here. Don't abandon me to myself and the mess that I've made. I don't want to be permanently trapped in any of my failings. I know my many failings are there, but I don't want to be trapped in them. And, and I have hope that by God's grace, one day I will escape those traps and I will no longer have those failings. And if I hope that for myself, then I need to hope that for other people too. I can't only hope that for me. I have to hope that for everybody else, no matter how many times they failed. If you're familiar with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, think of Gollum. You know, by the time we meet Gollum in The Hobbit, he's nearly lost all of his humanity. He just skulks around in caves. He can't see light. He mutters to himself, thinking evil thoughts and just searching for food. He is, he is barely human at all. And yet later, Frodo says about Gollum, I have to believe that even Gollum can be saved. And that's the attitude that we need to have about each other. Love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. We need to be a community of people who won't leave anybody in their hell, who will go as far as we possibly can. As I said before, we, we need to live out in the open with one another. About a week ago, Jeff sent Chad and Patrick and myself an email with some, some thoughts that he had had in his heart for a couple of weeks. And he thought that it might be a word from God for the church. And after reading it, we all thought, we do think that this is a word from God for the church. And as I was meditating on these verses at the very end of James about bringing someone back who has wandered, I was reminded of Jeff's word, and I thought that this would be the perfect time for Jeff to share it. So, Jeff, why don't you come up? Um, so, yeah, like Kelly said, this is just kind of uh, a collection of thoughts that I've kind of jotted down as I've been praying, um, kind of since the leaders' retreat. Um, so, excuse me if it seems like I'm reading. It's because I am reading. <laughs> so, so it's, is that better? Sorry. I also mumble, so <laughs> please forgive me. Um, 
So thinking back to the summer of 2019 when we were studying Exodus, Kelly gave a sermon um, that was about fall stories from the Old Testament. And one of the key points he made was that there's a pattern in scripture of um, these people experiencing great highs followed by great lows. Each fall story pivoted on the willful breaking of God's commands. And examples he gave included uh, Adam and Eve, David with Bathsheba, and the story of the golden calf. And part of that sermon was a warning that at the time, summer 2019, things were really good at TCF. Um, and we needed to be careful to not write in our, our own false story through our own sin. A few things he called us to included um, a need to pray together that God would lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, to not rely upon our own sight and perception over hearing and obeying the word of God, and simply but to trust and obey what you have learned from God. Um, and kind of, it's not a perfect analogy, but thinking about the growth of a business, um, a lot of management textbooks would break it down into four categories, um, being startup, growth, maturity, and then either renewal or decline is the fourth stage. And I think for a long time we've been in the growth and maturity phase um, as a church, not a business. Um, and so looking forward, are we going to renew or are we going to decline? Um, and that, that's just been on my heart. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not here to predict the fall of TCF, nor do I have like a, a clear, um, thus saith the Lord prophecy to share. Um, but this is a topic that I've spent some time praying on over the past few weeks. Um, and like Kelly said, the guys thought it would be worth sharing with the body. Um, the community of TCF, um, it's our strength. You know, it, it drive, it's driven our growth. It's why we're here instead of listening to the podcast tomorrow morning when it comes out. We all came here tonight for the community. Um, people yearn for community like we have. And I think for this exact reason that it would be the target of the enemy as a place to drive wedges and weaken our body as a whole. I believe we need to carefully protect the community that we're in by hearing and obeying and spurring on one another. Um, the enemy wants to keep us from pursuing holiness, especially in the form of community, because he knows the church is weaker when it is divided. Within a divided community, there's relational strife, decisions are made in silos, and resentment is stored for one another. Obviously, this is not the culture we want to develop within the church as a whole or TCF. Community is at its strongest when the body of Christ is deeply and humbly concerned with one another's holiness and pursuit of God's glory. When we're praying for one another, when we're hearing God on behalf of one another, and when we are collectively walking in obedience to the will of God. This happens together. Um, that is when the church and the life together style that TCF was founded upon. That's what it's all about. Um, while living this life together, we naturally have thoughts um, in the form of admonishments, encouragements to share with the people around us. And I think in these days, it's very important to consider how you handle these thoughts for one another. Are we having the conversations that we need to have? Are we writing off observed areas of sin where growth is needed in the brother or sister as a personality difference or a sensitive topic that you haven't been invited to speak into? Are you holding back a word that your brother or sister needs to hear? Um, we don't have formal membership at TCF, but I think um, that like I said, being here on Friday night, if you're consistently here, you're part of the church. And I think that that is enough of an invitation to speak into one another's life. 
When we store thoughts about someone else in our own head, we do a few things. We build internal arguments against them. We tear them down and think less of them. That person becomes a less valuable member of the team to you because of what you've convinced yourself about them in your own mind. You've broken down a relationship to the point where you wouldn't be able to hear from truth from them either, even if it is a clear word of God. This creates a crack that the enemy will find and weaken the bonds within the church. On the other side of the coin, we cannot be sensitive to hearing things that push us along towards holiness from another member of the body. From inside the church, we tend to kind of judge the world as being weak and relationshipless because people have become sensitive to hearing real truth and prefer to live in their truth. We must not allow that to happen in the church. We must hear from our brothers and sisters without preconceived notions about their motivations. Nobody in this body wants to see you fail. Nobody in this body wants to see your family led astray from the kingdom of God. Nobody wants to prevent you from enjoying life. Nobody wants to diminish your value. If we can convince ourselves of these truths so that when a brother or sister questions a decision we've made, shares a challenge, or encourages you to step out in some way, um, you can hear the real thing that that person is trying to tell you, which is, I want to help you become more like Christ today. So cover one another in prayer, don't rely on sights and perceptions, and have the conversations with someone that come out of true love for one another in the community of believers God has blessed us with. The method is proven, it restores and builds relationships, it opens up both parties to correction, and most of all, it protects God's church. The core families uh, that have been with TCF for 15, however many years, put in so much time and effort to carefully develop the culture we're now able to enjoy. That doesn't mean that we don't have to put in some work to maintain and protect it. We need to pray and develop real relationships that are more concerned with the kingdom of God and the holiness of one another than our own sights and perceptions of the world and of one another. Amen. I want to encourage us all to, when it's on the podcast, to go back and listen to that. You can't only have that once. Um, you, can, you can skip the sermon if you want to and just get to Jeff's point. But I, I want to encourage us all to listen to that multiple times and to receive that. Uh, I was particularly struck by community is our strength. I think we would all say that. But uh, being in the good of community can make us less than courageous in sharing things with each other that need to be shared. Uh, and it can be easy to just build up those cases in our mind and not be willing to share those things or to be prickly about hearing them. But we need to live out in the open with one another and to go as far as we can with one another for the sake of maturity. Amen. 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 Let's stand and, and I'll pray and then we'll come to the table.